Mario Ferraro is a thought leader in the area of global talent management and an active member of the Brunel Alumni Association Singapore. He moved to Singapore in 1998, but his unusual journey began in 1987. At the age of 18, one week after graduating from secondary school, he moved on his own from Italy to the UK. Mario had no job and spoke very little English. His early jobs were for basic survival, and during his commute, he began reading books on physics. His interest grew, and in 1987, he enrolled to study a degree in physics at Brunel University. Mario's first job after graduating required him to use his physics knowledge, but a gradual shift towards the people within organisation occurred. Because, you know, you could have the best idea in the world, but if you don't have the people to execute it, in the right place, at the right cost, at the right time. It's just not going to happen. You know, the world is full of great ideas which were never properly implemented because you don't have the right skills. However, his physics training was and still is an important part of the approach Mario takes in his role. When I think of how my physics interest and my physics background has helped me throughout this is I have found so many parallels and so many similarities between the laws of physics and what I observe in individuals, in organizations, and in societies in general. This conversation is the second of a new venture with the Brunel Alumni Association Singapore. The format is based on Entrepreneurs in Action, and we are looking to evolve it into a standalone podcast series focused on Brunel alumni based in Singapore. Send your ideas and suggestions to me on LinkedIn or in person at the next Brunel Alumni Association meetup in Singapore. So now, without further delay, let's begin. Okay, so I'm here with Mario Ferraro. Can you just tell me and our listeners, when were you at Brunel? I was from, at Brunel from 1987 and I graduated in 1991. And how did you get there? Because um, you're I, Italian, aren't you? That's right. You're, you're I'm from Italian. Italy. Okay, so in uh, 1983, uh, one week after graduating from my secondary school, I went on holiday to the UK. But I went with a one-way ticket. So trying my luck, it was meant to be a working holiday to see what I could do over there. And um, I never went back to Italy. So I got myself a little job, very modest jobs to start with. And uh, I could hardly speak any English at that time. I haven't really improved that much since then. But, I think uh, you have. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I got myself a few jobs. So I learned some English. I saved a bit of money. And then I found myself during my commute, which can be quite long in London, reading physics books. And uh, I remember this particular book by a gentleman called Paul Davis. The book was called Other Worlds speaking about quantum physics and the peculiarities of quantum physics. And I became so fascinated with physics that I decided to invest whatever savings I had to study further. And so I applied for some universities uh, with uh, some concern, some hesitation, because I, I wasn't sure if I were, was going to be able to attend, let alone finish a, a physics degree 
in English. <laughs> um, but I enrolled. I had a few interviews. I had to read two books of calculus in nine days to prepare for my interviews. And eventually, uh, I got into Brunel University. I was accepted in, uh, uh, for enrollment in 1987, purely out of passion, the passion that I had developed for the subject of physics during my commuting time, uh, going to work and back home for the previous four years. You arrived in the UK from Italy. Yes. You had no passion for physics. I had some understanding of physics. You had some uh, I've understand. always been fairly inquisitive. I like to figure out how things work. And, and I realized later that this, is, this has been a, a, a recurring theme in my life. I like to figure out how things work and how people work. Uh, but yeah, I had no inclination to do a physics degree when I left Italy. It's, it's an interest that developed um, over time as I... As I became more um, intrigued by the, what I was reading about quantum physics and about the, the, the new discoveries that, that, that until then I wasn't very familiar with. Did you have a degree or any qualification? So in Italy we have a, a, an education system whereby you do five years of primary school, three years of middle school, and then five years of secondary school. The last three years uh, there is a specialization uh, my specialization in secondary school was actually agriculture uh, and um, um, agricultural industries like dairy farming, oil production, and wine production. Uh, so that was kind of my specialization. As part of that, there was physics, there was some mathematics, there was some chemistry. Um, but, you know, when I left Italy, I had really no clear idea as to what I was going to study next. Or, In fact, I was more interested in kind of getting a job and starting to earn some money. So what was that job when you arrived in, in the UK? Well, with, with very little English and very little work experience, I, I did many small jobs. My very first job, believe it or not, was supporting a tailor who was an Iranian lady in London. And my job was basically to pick up threads off the floor and help her, help her to unstitch uh, you know, clothes. And then uh, I worked in some factories. Uh, I worked in a hotel. But throughout this, my objective was primarily to experience the UK. I, I, I tried very hard to not to get myself stuck into the Italian community there, because that would have defeated the objective of, uh, of going through a new experience. And I think that helped me a lot in terms of um, becoming familiar with the culture, with the language, uh, but also experiencing to the fullest the, the new environment and understanding you know, really how to function in, in a new environment, in a new cultural environment, in a new language and so on. And, and I still remember nowadays, the first time when I was supporting this tailor, the first time the phone rang and I was there on my own. And I was panicking because, you know, for the first time in my life, I had to pick up the phone and have a conversation in English uh, and kind of, kind of got by. And I realized that, look, if you apply yourself and if you have a bit of courage, a bit of confidence, you may not get it 100% right, but you'll get by and eventually you will improve over time. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, that has also given me a bit more confidence to start things and then figure out how do I make the best of every situation. And that was also the philosophy of going into university. 
and uh, and studying really hard, applying myself really hard to to complete the degree, and um, yeah, to make the most of the experience really. Yeah. So which part of the UK did you move to first? To London. I was in London all the time. Which part of London? Okay, so when I arrived, I was in a hostel near, just next to the British Museum. Um, then uh, I lived in, uh, in in various places. I was in, uh, I had a very small place in uh, Kensington High Street, then um, Gloucester Road. And then eventually when I went to Brunel, I was on campus for the first year. I was in Hillingdon for the second year and then on campus for the third and fourth year again. Did, yeah. did you do much traveling around the UK? In that uh, time? Very little traveling, you know, mainly to the, the, the key destinations like Brighton, you know, um, and then various parts, you know, Liverpool. But uh, uh, I was trying to save my money, really, because uh, I, I had invested literally everything I had saved with my modest jobs to, to, get, um, to get a university degree. When you left Italy, was the purpose to study in the UK or just to... No, it was basically to visit the UK and um, you know, find a job and see how long I could uh, survive there. And, uh, you know, um, there was always the fallback option to go back to Italy. But quite frankly, I have very small family in Italy, only my sister, and I had no real connection. So it would have been the same for me having to start from scratch in Italy. The only difference would have been the language, but um, I have no regrets whatsoever. You know? yeah. So why aren't you a physicist now? Okay, actually, um, uh, it's interesting how your career takes you to different places and it branches out over time. When I graduated from Brunel, within a very short period of time, I found a job with a the, the UK's largest uh, software house, a company called Logica, Logica International. They have different divisions, and I was hired into the space and telecommunication division. And so the, within this division, effectively, the, the company develops computer systems, softwares, for the control of satellites or for the functioning of Earth stations to control the satellites. And so I was applying my physics principles to those kind of, uh, those kind of uh, situations. And I did a number of projects. In fact, ironically, I, the only time in my life where I worked in Italy, it was as an expat from the UK. I was assigned to, to a place called Frascati near Rome, where the European Space Agency has a center that receives all the data from various satellites. It was an interesting project. But over time, I gradually moved more on the project management side, on the administration of the projects. And that involves, in many cases, having to mobilize uh, computer scientists, administrators, uh, you know, um, programmers, various personnel onto projects. And then what happened is, was within this organization, they had different divisions, space and telecommunication being just one of them. They, there was a role that was in charge of actually mobilizing or optimizing the utilization of the resources across all divisions, uh, across multiple projects, you know, all the projects that the organization was running across the world. And um, I had some interesting in that because, you know, even though that will move, move, move me a bit away from the actual programming and project management, it was more about ensuring that projects will have 
the optimal resources. And so I entered this role and I was in charge globally of the effectively staffing and resourcing of all the projects across all divisions within the organization. So about 200 people who were moving across the world. And that gave me, I think, a different kind of exposure, uh, project management, but understanding the, the, the human capital requirements of the projects, understanding the skills, the experience that was required, understanding the timelines and the budgets, and having to make it all fit. And so that role was created, and I was actually in that role for about three or four years uh, within Logica, working across all divisions, which gave me kind of a broader exposure to the functioning and to the various divisions of the organization. So it was a, a bit of a, of a, of a change um, that moved me in, in a different direction, more on the administrative and human capital management side of the business, which then kind of um, became my career, kind of what I do to this day. Um, because from there, I was actually hired into one of the world's largest um, consulting organizations, one of the big four, which interestingly wanted to set up a consulting practice to help their clients um, optimize their resources and optimize the administrative model to manage international operations. Did you apply for that job or were you headhunted? Actually, I was recommended. recommended uh, one, of the, one of my ex-colleagues who had left Logica, he was a tax manager. He had moved to, at the time, Pricewaterhouse um, as part of the, you know, the tax practice. And he informed me that um, you know, Pricewaterhouse was already doing a lot of tax work for all the expats of many multinational organizations but they were thinking of creating a consulting practice to support not just the tax side, but also the administrative um, aspect of mobilizing people across borders. Such a practice already existed in the United States, and they wanted to replicate it across Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And they were looking for someone with real practical operational experience of actually helping organizations, complex and large organizations with a big global footprint to actually mobilize resources from a practical point of view, looking at compliance issues, but also looking at compensation, looking at administrative models, looking at cost, looking at you know efficiencies and, and how to do it in a quick and efficient and compliant way. And so this gentleman effectively informed me that this vacancy was being created and uh, he put me in touch with a partner who was leading this, uh, this, uh, this, this initiative. I was interviewed and I assume they saw that I had some real practical hands-on experience, which kind of complemented the, the very large tax experience that everybody has. And so I was given this opportunity to effectively start a consulting practice for uh, Pricewaterhouse at that time. That was before the merger with Coopers and Lyran. Um, and I basically helped them to set it up from scratch, pretty much from scratch across uh, Europe, Middle East and Africa. And I was there for uh, about two years, after which one of our clients that we were supporting um, from the UK requested some support in uh, Asia Pacific as well. And so the challenge there was to 
create a similar practice in Asia Pacific, at which point my boss came to me and said, how would you like to go to Singapore to replicate the work that you've done in uh, Europe, Middle East and Africa to set up the Asia Pacific practice? And that was 1998. That's when I came to Singapore, 24 years ago, to set up the Asia Pacific practice for uh, Pricewaterhouse, which then became PwC. And um, that was a great privilege for me to for twice start um, such a business from scratch, uh, being employee number one and having to hire people, create office practices, office procedures, find new clients, so even dealing with the business development. But most importantly, to work with some of the world's best multinational organizations. Uh, working alongside some of the best HR professionals, business leaders, to understand how multinationals work um, globally, how they operate, how they expand, and how sometimes they need to get out of some markets. And supporting them with all the human capital, with all the human resources dimension of what they want to do. Because, you know, you could have the best idea in the world, but if you don't have the people to execute it, in the right place, at the right cost, at the right time. It's just not going to happen. You know, the world is full of great ideas which were never properly implemented because you don't have the right skills or you don't do it in the right time. Right? And so working alongside some of these big organizations was really a great, great privilege for me because not only I was helping them, they were also helping me to develop, to learn. And every time I do a project, every time I work with a client, I enrich my own experience, which then goes to the benefit of the next clients. And so there is this cross-pollination of ideas, of knowledge, pushing the boundaries together. Um, and, and this is a great, um, a great way to discover and to continuously learn how the world is changing, how organizations are thinking. Mario, tell me, how many of you are actually working for your company here in Singapore? At the moment, I'm the only employee based in Singapore. Uh, the organization is actually headquartered in Geneva, in Switzerland, where we have about uh, close to 100 people. And uh, I'm building the team here in Singapore. At the moment, I also have some people in the UK and in the Philippines. And um, yeah, the objective is to grow the presence in APAC. Uh, we do have clients in Singapore currently, currently being supported from Geneva. So in the very near future, we will see... Uh, a much larger presence here in Singapore. And how long have you been working with this company? Uh, about two years, just over two years. Yeah. yeah. And what's the name of the company? Uh, ITX. ITX. Yeah. You set up the business and you were employee number one. Right. So would you look at your role as being an entrepreneur? How would you describe your role? I will say, well, I will define myself more as an integrator, right? Um, Can you tell me what an integrator was? That's a new, new yeah, one to me. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, well, what I've done consistently, uh, I've, I've entered an organization. I've understood what the organization's core business is, what they are, what they are already doing very well, and then mapped those services, those capabilities to the market demand and developed additional services that complement, that build on what the organization already is providing to provide an expanded or an enhanced range of services to the clients. Right? 
And very often those capabilities already exist within the organization, but they're just working in a very disconnected way. There are many organizations with many divisions, many business units that don't really talk to each other. They never integrate those different capabilities into an integrated solution to the client because they have a very inward way of looking at what they do. All right? And if you put the client at the center of your business model, that's when you start looking at the problem from the client's perspective. So if a client has a problem of you know, having to attract resources or having to motivate someone to move to another country, uh, you need to have a holistic view of that problem from the employee's point of view or from the company's point of view. You cannot go to the client to say, you know, we have one division who sells you the salary survey, another division that is selling you the tax advice, another division that is giving you the immigration advice, and someone else who's going to help you to, I don't know, find a school for your kids. You know, you need to have an integrated solution to them. When I think of how my physics interest and my physics background has helped me throughout this is... I have found so many parallels and so many similarities between the laws of physics and what I observe in individuals, in organizations, and in societies in general. Because I look at these as systems. Right? An organization is a system, in a sense, that responds, that works on the basis of a set of rules that, to some extent, are predictable. But also, what I find fascinating about what I've done after my physics degrees. You know, you think rocket science is difficult. It's often taken as the epitome of the complication. Actually, you try and deal with individuals. Once you inject, you know, into an equation, individual personalities and preferences and personal circumstances, then you're really dealing with something complicated. It becomes a bit of an art and a bit of a science, right? Your role seems to be focused on people. You've described how you view the situation and how you can see parallels between the two but for most people they focus on personalities and this creates conflict so how do you get over the conflicts that right. are within an organization right it's, it's a very good question and so i go back to my passion for understanding how things work so, so if you take that I think that comes before the physics interesting. Physics, my choice of studying physics was a consequence of my passion for understanding what makes things work, including what makes people work. And as a matter of fact, after my physics degree, I did um, a lot of studies in neurolinguistic programming. I have a master's certification in neurolinguistic programming. Where did I'm, you do that? Here in, in Singapore. In Singapore. Yeah. I am a certified life coach. And so I put a lot of attention um, on, I give a lot of attention to how human beings respond and what motivates them, uh, what they run away from and what they run towards, right? And, and, and the beauty of, of one of the most interesting aspects of my current role, which is very much focusing on helping organizations to move people across borders is that there is a huge dimension of human psychology in that. Because, you know, it is not easy to go to someone and say, hey, you know, uh, I want to move your life to another country. Tell your kids to get out of school. Tell your spouse to give up her job. Move your, put your dog in quarantine. Say goodbye to your parents. And I'm going to send you to, I don't know, 
Mongolia for two years, right? Um, you know, you need to find a way of selling that to someone, right? You need to understand things from the company's perspective. The company has a need to have that level of mobility within the organization, but there is an individual on the other side. And so what I do today goes very deep into the personal lives of each individual because each one of them will have a different set of you know, priorities and so on. And so my role there is to reconcile the organizational organization priorities, which is around speed of deployment, managing the cost, working within the, the limits of compliance, whether it's immigration, tax, social security, and so on, but also balancing that with the needs of an individual, right? And so there, I have developed methodologies. I've actually developed equations to actually help organizations find the right formula to balance these two things. And this is something that I do, again, out of passion, right? So uh, when I do conferences, I like to throw on the board some just simple equations. This is an equation for employee engagement, for example. This is an equation how you manage employee satisfaction. And so, again, it goes back to having a holistic view of the problem rather than a one-sided view, understanding all the elements that come into the equation, some of which are tangible and measurable, like compliance, cost, you know, timelines, but others are fairly intangible. Um, and so that's, I think, is an additional uh, beauty of, of, of the current role that is not just very cut and dry rules or compliance or, 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 or a book of regulations. There is this human dimension that makes it different every time, right? When I left the UK to China, one of the things that I was introduced to was culture shock. And in your role, that must be, I would say, part of your equation that you would yeah. put in. Yeah. How do you deal with culture shock? Right. Um, because I don't think you can predict it. Some people yeah. can deal with it very right. well and yeah. some people just can't. Right. So how's yeah. your, what's your approach right. on that? Yeah, I call it the, the law of refraction, okay? Going back to physics, all right, you know that light travels at a different speed depending on the medium, right? And at the same way, in the same way, an individual performs in a different way. The performance depends on which environment you put this person into, all right? It's a direct correlation with that. Um, and I've seen individuals who were top performers in their home location, then you transplant them into a different environment because of difference in communication, difference in culture. They don't know how to run a meeting. They don't know how to give feedback. They don't understand feedback that is given to them. And it can be a complete disaster. Or in the best case scenario, it takes a while for them to actually integrate and start to be functional in the new environment. And the solution is to be aware of that and to do a lot of preparation work. So you can do some preparation work, preparation work before departure. You can provide some support on arrival in the, in the form of a buddy or someone who kind of can bridge the, the two cultures. But also you have to prepare people in the host environment. It is not just you going to China, for example, having to be prepared for a new experience. I mean, a lot of the responsibility is on you, but it would be nice to prepare the team in China 
to the fact that you're arriving, so that they're also aware there is someone coming here from a different culture. This is how they think. This is what we need to do, you know, to, to, to somehow bridge that gap. It needs to be, again, a holistic way of approaching the problem where it's the, the, the preparation is done in a very holistic sense from both sides. Um, with a lot of tolerance, a lot of understanding, but there needs to also it's important to find a figure of of a kind of a of a mediator or a coach, at least for the first uh, for the first few months or years, um, who can help you to translate those different contexts. Because again, culture also has different layers. Right, there is a very superficial layer, which they always teach you. You know, how do you give the business cards? How do you greet people, and so on. But there is something a lot deeper than that. Than that, you know, how do you conduct a meeting in a different environment? If someone is not performing, you know, how do you tell them? How do you manage them? Do you do it in private? Do you do it in public? You know, do you deal with people as a team? Do you deal with them as an individual? Do you reward the individual? Do you reward the team? You know, uh, how do you build trust in an environment where people don't really know who you are, uh, and, and how do they think? So. The cultural preparation really should be a lot deeper than what you see in, in many organizations, unfortunately, where they give you a fairly superficial overview of mainly the etiquette more than the culture. But culture is so deeply rooted that sometimes it is very easy to, to kind of assume that you know everything. And, and for example, a place like Singapore can be fairly deceiving in a sense that you know, you come here, it's all kind of looks very westernized, everybody speaks English, it's very modern. And, you know, you may be forgiven for thinking that I don't need to change anything, all right? I think there is a lot of tolerance because here there is a long history of having, you know, foreigners and so on. But we should never forget that, you know, beneath this kind of veneer of uh, kind of Western kind of lifestyle and so on, you know, different ethnic groups have, you know, hundreds or thousands of years of deeply rooted cultural beliefs, traditions, which we as foreigners, you know, need to understand, need to respect, we need to, you know, you need to take into account, right? And, and we cannot assume that everybody else needs to adapt to us, you know, that it needs to be, it needs to be both ways, yeah. So if you... Um, were to have planned your career up to this point, could you have done it? Or is it just opportunities and chances that have come up? Because some, some people take the approach that uh, in 10 years' time, I will be this. In 15 years' time, I will be doing this. And this is a route. Or would you say that because the world changes, and I'm sort of hinting <laughs> at you, um, you have to sort of be more flexible, especially in what you've done? Uh, um, I mean, in my case, I discovered, um, I would say that I'm passionate about uh, what I do today. I've had opportunities to change, uh, to change my career. And um, as I say, to, to this day, I, I, I enjoy my job. And I think it is um, uh, relevant in the sense that the world has become a smaller place, you know, working away from home, from from a home country, is uh, is increasingly common, right? And we are kind of living proof of that, both of us. Um, and organizations, I mean, even in the way that organizations are moving their employees across borders, 
that is also evolving. Now there is this new dimension of remote employment, for example. You know, how do you reconcile that with the need to be physically present in a location? So to answer your question, I'm kind of following the passion. I'm leveraging my current skills and I'm trying to apply them in a relevant way to a changing context. So the context is changing. The world is changing, absolutely. Uh, I find that I have to continuously adapt my skills so, so that uh, I am continue to be relevant to, to, to this changing environment. And, and for example, um, during the pandemic, uh, today I work for an organization that again supports multinational companies to deploy people around the world, to develop administrative models to do this very efficiently. Uh, but during the pandemic, guess what happened? Nobody was moving across borders anymore because the borders were closed uh, for, 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 for reasons that we know. And so what I had to do, I had to immediately think, how can we help our organizations? You know, they have international operations, but they cannot move people across the world. And so I developed within a matter of probably two months a new model for the compliant, effective management of employees working remotely across borders, which is something that to this day, many multinational organizations are still struggling with. Some of them have improvised. So initially they were saying, okay, you know, anybody can work from anywhere, what's the big deal? You know, and, and many governments were very tolerant of that because, because of the pandemic. But it is not a sustainable solution to, to improvise because you get into a lot of cost issues, compliance issues, compensation issues, and, and a lot of issues that I'm not going to go into. And so by recognizing that, uh, I saw the need for organizations to actually uh, work in a different way, but do it in a way that makes sense. And so I developed this new solution, which is now adopted by some multinational organizations. And, and, and we are discussing it with many others as we speak. So different countries approach the pandemic in different ways. And as we open up, as the world opens up again, um, you have in China, you have the zero COVID policy, which is making it very difficult for companies to plan in some ways. You know, do they send people out? It can take five weeks to get somebody into China. Right. We were booking flights, getting yeah. all the approvals, yeah. uh, the quarantine period. Uh, here in Singapore, it's, it's, it can almost be instantaneous at the moment as long as you know yeah. you fulfill the legal requirements um how do you manage this kind of change because it, it varies so much absolutely and, and this is precisely why a lot of the focus today for me is helping organizations to inject into their operating model the flexibility and the agility to do different things in different countries, but also for the same country sometimes, things can change overnight. Nobody knew that China was going to become like that. You know, it happened fairly quickly, relatively quickly, all right? So now there, there is this situation in Eastern Europe, which, you know, is creating a lot of uncertainty. Can you move people into Russia, into Ukraine? Can Russians go and travel overseas or are they banned, all right? 
And so what that means is that we, we live in a, in, in a very hyper-connected world. We live in an environment where things can change very rapidly. And it's very difficult to develop operating models specific to a situation because you don't know what the next situation is going to be or how quickly it's going to, it's going to develop. The constant there is that you need to be agile. As an organization, you need to be able to realign, realign very quickly. You need to be able to scale up or scale down. And the solutions that I'm developing for organizations out there are precisely aimed at that. Um, part of that is to do with uh, co-sourcing or outsourcing some of your functions, which are the non-critical functions, so that you can quickly scale up or down. Right. So if you have a team that, uh, I don't know, two years ago they were managing 1,000 expats, today they are managing 300. You really need all those people, right? Uh, but if you let them go and then it goes up to 1,000, what do you do, right? So this scalability can be addressed to some extent with some level of co-sourcing or outsourcing. The building into your framework, the ability to move people physically across borders or to let them work virtually across borders, again, that gives you additional agility. So that if it is difficult to get people into China, well, maybe they can start working virtually until they are ready to move physically. But you need a framework that allows you to switch between, you know, from one to another model very seamlessly and very effectively. Right? And when you build that into your organization, new opportunities open up. I work with, um, I developed a project for, 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 for a European organization where effectively the vision there was we would like all our business leaders to access the skills of any of our employees around the world, regardless of where they are, either physically or virtually. So imagine if every organization had a model that allows them to hire anyone they want, anywhere in the world, or to tap into the expertise of any of their employees anywhere in the world from any location. Basically, you know, the global talent pool is yours. And that can only be good for a business to have that option. And if they cannot move physically, you can ask them to work across borders remotely. And that really gives you a different level of flexibility that can only be good for the businesses and is really what I believe is going to be the new way of working across borders. So what benefit does being a member of the Brunel University Alumni Association bring you? It's, it's great, first of all, to, to, to meet very regularly with uh, alumni, fellow alumni, alumni, I should say, um, to 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 just to be update up to date to 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 see to understand what's happening back in the UK to understand how different individuals have developed uh, have branched out in different directions um, uh, and so we, I I really feel that we still have something in common and it's really great to catch up it's just a pleasure to to catch up and to feel. That still part of that um, that uh, alma mater, as they say, um, uh, that that really brings us all together once in a while, and it's really great. What advice would you give to the current Brunel students? My advice, in general, is of course study hard and realize that you know, what you learn at university is not just a subject. You learn a lot of skills. 
that will last you for a lifetime. You know, the discipline of uh, applying yourself to a topic, um, the social skills that you develop by working with your with your uh, lecturers, with your fellow uh, students, classmates. Uh, but ultimately, once you have your degree, just follow your passion. Okay, see where it takes you. Uh, if you are interested in staying within the domain that you studied, absolutely do that, and you go very far. Um, if your career takes you somewhere else, as long as you are, remain passionate about what you do, I think that's always a blessing. You know, I still get out of bed every day looking forward to starting my working day because I really enjoy it and it's something that, you know, I, um, I, I never regret. Uh, the worst thing you can do is to get stuck in a career that you don't like uh, simply because you feel that you are constrained um, within the domain that you studied. Uh, I'm kind of living proof that uh, it is possible, if, if, if you want to, to branch out. Um, but I could have equally well stayed in the, you know, in the physics space or in the software development space and, and kept my skills at that. So um, I have no regrets so far. Yeah. Okay. So thanks, Mario. Thank you. And we should be meeting up at the next alumni meeting. I look forward to that. So do I. Thank okay. you. Thanks very much. Thanks, Neville.